0: Well, we're going to go to God together in prayer in just a moment, but wanted to make sure that you knew. I know many of you do already that uh, Fee Funderburk passed away, a longtime member of this church, Sunday school teacher, and so be in prayer for uh, Johnson and his family. And also this afternoon at three o'clock, uh, right here at Ashley River, there will be a funeral service, and would like to encourage as many of you as can be here to encourage the family uh, to be here for that. Let's go to God together now in prayer. Father, we bless you, our God and Father, because you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And because of what you have given us, God, help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. With humility, gentleness, and patience, that we would bear with one another in love and that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God, we come to you as your children today and ask that you would intervene, especially in the lives of those who are battling either with uh, spiritual difficulty or with physical illness or emotional weight. God, we think especially of the Funderburk family. I pray for Johnson, for his children. God, I pray that you would encourage them. Uh, it's a joy to know that for Fee, there is no more pain no more crying, no more sadness, no more sickness, but that she is with her Savior. And yet for us, it's, it's, it's a sad loss. And so God, I pray that you would encourage them. We continue to pray as well for Sally Ebbett. God, I pray that you will sustain her in these days of her life. Give her strength. God, we pray that your spirit would intervene, that you would heal her. God, we pray as well for Richard McNamee after he recovers from his surgery. God, give him strength as well. We pray for Adams Run Baptist Church in Hollywood, South Carolina. God, I pray that they would preach the gospel faithfully and see people come to know you. We think this morning of the family of uh, John McCain, for Senator McCain, for uh, the state of Arizona. God, I pray that the gospel would go out at a time when many are grieving and and marking his loss. And we think this morning of uh, IMB missionaries with the Hijazi Saudi Arabs of Saudi Arabia, God, even as I read this week of a man who expressed an interest in learning more about what you have to say in your word, God, bring people to faith in Christ in that place. And we think of of members here at Ashley River, we pray for the Acker family, for John and Christy. God, I pray that you would bless their marriage. I pray that you would help them know what it means to love one another as Christ loves the church. And I pray for their children, for Olivia, Blair, and Millie. God, I pray that they would be young ladies who know and follow you, who are passionate to make you known. And now, God, we come to your word and we submit to your word knowing that it is enough. And we ask that you would open our eyes to see that Jesus is the rightful king of our lives and that he is a king for all people. And Father, we ask that for anyone here who does not know Jesus as savior and king, that you would open their eyes to see their need of him. And we pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin a series this week in the book of Matthew, and I'll just kind of as we do this, kind of let you know what our approach will be on a typical week-to-week basis, and that's that we'll come to a book or section of Scripture, and we'll just work through it consecutively. Uh, and Sometimes what you call expositional preaching, we just try to expose what's here in the Bible in a way that points our eyes to Jesus Christ. Uh, this will kind of help you know what to expect, so next week we'll start in verse, uh, in, we'll go through verse 17, next week we'll start in verse 18, and it also, you know, everyone has things they care more or less about, maybe hobby horses they get stuck on, and this is a way for, uh, hopefully, us to ex- see what God has in his word as we come to it, rather than, uh, you know, I don't know, sort of my own ideas or something like that, guiding what we look at week by week, but we'll, we'll look at the word of God together. I'll begin reading in the book of Matthew, and we'll read 17 verses here. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham and Jotham the father of Ahaz and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh and Manasseh the father of Amos and Amos the father of Josiah and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim and Eliakim the father of Azor and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations generations. Now, I know you would have all just loved to have the opportunity to get up here and spit out all those names this morning. Uh, It can be quite the adventure when you're going through those uh, Hebrew names that are kind of tried to make English for us, but they don't all exactly uh, work great in English. We're going to work through these first 17 verses this morning. And as we do, we're going to see that this is actually kind of a legal document. In other words, it's a record, a birth record of Jesus the King. It's the line of the King. It's his lineage that records to us how we come to Jesus. And as we do this it's possible to see this just as a list of names, but this list of names actually teaches us something very significant, and it's this, that Jesus is a king for all peoples. Jesus is a king for all people. Well, the book that we're digging in here this morning has a title over it, and if your Bible looks anything like mine at the top of the page, it says, the gospel according to Matthew. Well, gospel is simply a word that means good news. Matthew, the guy writing this, is a tax collector, and I was thinking that really only a tax collector or accountant could start with an itemized list and call that good news. But somehow he thought he had some good news, and he started with this itemized list. This passage might seem simply like it's a list of names, but don't be fooled into thinking that's all there is here, because what happens here is we have a spark, and this spark is going to fan into flame and it's be- going to become something much bigger than just a list of names. So for instance, you might look at it this way. As we trek through the Bible, you've got centuries, a couple thousand years worth of history. And what happens is you have individuals, you have prophets, priests, and kings, and they're all looking for someone. They're all anticipating someone, someone that's been promised since the very beginning in Genesis chapter three. When Adam and Eve first fell there was a prediction made that there was one coming who would crush the head of the serpent. And ever since that time, God's people have been looking for this one, and they've actually been looking for a king. And when we come to the book of Matthew, Matthew follows what's called 400 years of silence. In other words, for 400 years, God's people have been looking, they've been in darkness, and yet God has not been speaking either by prophet, priest, or king. And we come to the book of Matthew, and Matthew introduces us to Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so what's gonna happen is there's all this that we've been waiting for and Matthew's sort of gonna pry the lid off of this story and help us see something clearly or maybe if we look at it this way, it's like we've been looking through time and Hebrews tells us that uh, in the Old Testament, under the old covenant, God's people looked at God but they looked through a veil, looked at God as if he were a shadow. So you, you can see there's this picture of God and yet we don't clearly see who he is yet. And what Matthew does here is he takes the telescope of history, and it's been blurry. So you can see that there's a picture out there, but it's not in focus yet. And here in these verses, he's going to bring it into focus, and we're going to see clearly the promised king, the one who's coming, and his name is Jesus. He's identifying that for us. So this section reveals to us this morning astoundingly good news, especially if you're someone here that's like this. You're the kind of person that feels the weight of your sin. Now, by this, I don't mean that you know that you're a sinner. I mean that you feel the weight of that sin. Because it's one thing to know something, but there are some of us who tend to live with something we might call the shame of sin, the the, the burden, the guilt of sin. And this message is especially a message for that kind of person, the kind of person that not only knows that he has broken God's law, but understands that before God, he deserves the full judgment of God for his sin. But what we're going to see is that Jesus is a king who does not have to hide shame or hide from shame because he is a king who can destroy shame. As we're going to walk through this this morning, we'll see that first, the line of Jesus is a royal line. It's a line of kings. Matthew introduces his gospel with a line that's almost identical to what we find early in our Bible. So if you look at the very first book of your Bible, Genesis, what you have there is a series. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and then you have this book of the generations. Well, we have the same thing here. It's the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Christ means anointed one. Now, in our, the way we think about Christ today, we often, we might call him Christ, or Jesus, or Jesus Christ. But what is happening there is actually what we have is a name and a title that we often just think of his name. So for instance, uh, this weekend, as I reference in my prayer, Senator John McCain passed away. Well, if I were to ask you his name, you would know his name is what? John McCain. Well, what's his title? Senator. McCain. Well, we recognize that because of the way we use the words, but the way we use these words, Jesus Christ, is not always clear to us, but what we have here is a name, Jesus, and a title, Christ, or anointed one or Messiah. So it's Jesus the Christ. So what he's saying is he's distinguishing this Jesus from every other Jesus. So for instance, you know my name is Joshua. Well, Jesus is a New Testament form of the Old Testament word Joshua. Well, there are a lot of little Joshua's or Jesuses running around. And so what's happening here is is saying, there is a Jesus who's different from every other one, and his name is Jesus the Christ. He's the anointed one, the one that's been promised. And it comes with a remarkable surprise here. If you look at verse one, you see this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that may not surprise you, but if you know your Bible and the order of your Bible, there is something here that should surprise you, and it's this. Who comes first, Abraham or David? Abraham. Well, who's listed first? David. Well, why is he listing David first? Well, it's because Matthew is emphasizing something particular about Jesus. He's telling us that he is the legal heir to the throne of David. In fact, as you track through this genealogy, David appears a lot. Verse 1, the son of David. Verse 6, David the king. Verse 17, Abraham to David, David to Babylon. So what he's doing is showing us that in this genealogy, this long list of names where it's easy to get lost in the middle of them, the key figure, the key person in this is David, the king. Well, this is especially important because of a promise that God made to David, a covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he promised David, I will raise up your offspring. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In Isaiah 9, that part that's famous in Messiah 4, run to us, you know, you know that part? A child is born, his name shall be everlasting father, prince of peace, but also the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He's an eternal king. So what's happening here is that Matthew is making two unmistakably clear claims. One is that Jesus is the promised king. So there's been 400 years of silence and Matthew is saying the king is here and his name is Jesus. Amen. And he's making a second claim because he is the promised king, he is also the promised coming Messiah, the one who will deliver his people from their sins. Jesus is a king, but he's not like any other king. He's the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament has anticipated. Now imagine that you're a good Hebrew, a good Jew. And you have been tracking history, and you know this promise in 2 Samuel 7 that there is a coming king. Well, when God made this promise to David, what did he think? You have a son coming who's going to ruin, reign forever, and then he has a king, and his name Solomon, and Solomon is placed on the throne, and what, what do David and God's people think? Oh, it's, it's going to be Solomon, but, but Solomon's, someone fails, his, his wives, many wives turned his heart away from God. And then Solomon has a son who's a foolish son, Rehoboam, and they hope it's Rehoboam, but it's not Rehoboam, and in fact, under Rehoboam, the kingdom fractures, and there are only really two tribes left of 12. It's looking bleak, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and for generations, for centuries, God's people are hoping that the coming king will be the one, and whether it's a good king like Josiah, or whether it's a wicked king like Manasseh, every king fails. And now God's people have waited in four centuries of darkness. And it appears that the promise of God has failed. It appears that there is no king. And yet, unbeknownst to those people there, in a little backwater village, there's a man living in Nazareth. He's a carpenter. His name is Joseph. And Joseph will take his family to another little backwater town, Bethlehem. And there his wife will have a baby. And this baby is like a seed. It's like one living branch. There's this dead stump, and yet there's one branch. There's one leaf growing on this, and there is life, and from this one branch will spread a fire that cannot be put out. It will spread to the ends of the earth, and that branch, his name is Jesus. And again, God's word uses this exact picture in the word to tell us what Jesus is like, Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesus is coming and Matthew is saying the king is here. King Jesus is here and he has every right to the throne of David. Now it's one thing to recognize that in history. It's one thing to recognize that in scripture. But brothers and sisters, friends, I'm here to tell you that King Jesus has the right to rule your life too. He is the creator of all things. He spoke the world into existence. He is the heir to the eternal throne promised by God and he is our rightful king too. Now if you're like me, I like to live my life this way. Like there is a king and I happen to be king. I happen to be like to think that I can rule my own life, make my own choices and, and live independent of Christ and yet what Matthew is beginning to say here and that will become more and more clear is that Jesus is king and God's word declares that we must submit to him worship him as our king Jesus line is a royal line and secondly we'll see that it is a shame filled line now this is a little bit of a surprise because it doesn't seem to go with what we've just been looking at does it I mean, you don't connect royal king and shame those pictures don't seem to go together Well, some of the names that we have here are surprising because what we have here is not a list of every person who existed between Abraham and Jesus. What we have here are names that have been selected to record for us. In other words, Matthew is giving us a list of names to prove a point, and that is that Jesus is the heir to David's throne. Now, what we have here throughout is so-and-so is the father of so-and-so. Well, that's just an expression that means that person is in the direct line. So this morning, my son Joseph, who's two, is in the nursery. Well, you could say he's my son, and he is my son, but, but the way that the writers of Scripture and history would look at it, you could also say, so my, my dad, his name is Dennis, and Dennis's dad is named Joseph, and so both Joseph and Dennis have passed away, but you could just, just as easily say Joseph is the son of Dennis or Joseph is the son of Joseph. Well, we're not doing that to say that, that like, that's a person responsible for rearing him. All that says is there's like a direct bloodline. And so all these names listed here, it doesn't mean that they're listing every possible person. What he's doing is he's following a direct line down to Christ through the generations. Well, I said there's a surprise, and that's kind of the order of Abraham and David, but there's another surprise here. Now, I don't think anyone here woke up and prayed this this morning, at least I hope you didn't, but if you were a first century Jewish man, it was a tradition to wake up and pray a prayer that sounded something like this, God, I thank you this morning that I am not a slave, not a Gentile, and especially not a woman. Now, please don't be offended, and husbands, I hope none of you prayed that this morning, <clears throat> but that was a traditional Jewish prayer that they would pray in the first century because there were things that you didn't want to be in Jewish culture, things that were on the outside and things that were very shameful. Gentiles, slaves, women. Well, if you were trying to prove the purity of a royal line, you probably wouldn't go out of your way to prove that there were Gentiles and women responsible for this and yet Matthew includes both gentiles and women. I mean if you were to trace your way through the list of names you'd see names that appear elsewhere in our Bible. So in verse 3 you'd see the names Judah and Tamar. And right by those names you could write in incest. Because Tamar had relations with her father-in-law Judah and that's in the line of Christ. Or if you to track a couple of verses further you can come to verse 5 and you find Salmon and Rahab, and right there you could write prostitute, because Rahab was a pagan prostitute, and yet she's the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus the Messiah. Or in verse five, you come to Ruth, who by all accounts was a God-fearing woman, and yet she was a Moabite exile, an outcast both among the Jews and her own people. You could write outcast there. Or then you come to verse 6, David the king, the hero of this passage, right? But then you see David and he's linked with the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this woman isn't even important enough to get a name. But we know her name. Scripture tells us her name. Her name is Bathsheba. And here you could write murder, adultery. You see, David stole a wife, Bathsheba, and had a child with this wife and then had her husband killed. David took... A faithful man and executed him to steal his wife. Early America there was a well-known author named Nathaniel Hawthorne. He wrote a book called The Scarlet Letter. Now kind of the metaphor of that book is more famous than the actual story of the book but, but in, the, in the book what happens there's a woman who is found to be with child and no one knows who the father is. And so kind of the mystery of the book is who is the father? And I'm not going to spoil the book for you if you actually do want to read it. But what happens is because this woman is found to be with child, she's forced, she's labeled, she must wear this scarlet letter A for adulterous. And she wears this label of shame. Well, Matthew has taken a document that's intended to prove that Jesus is the king and he's hung a bright red letter A over it, a label of shame. He he hasn't brushed over the difficult parts of Jewish history. You've got murder, incest, adultery, you name it, Gentiles, outcasts. Well, I love that Matthew wrote this list. See, Matthew knows about shame too. Maybe Jesus went and he called Matthew to follow him, but, but other people weren't speaking to Matthew because Matthew is a tax collector. Now, you probably don't like the IRS, or maybe the Charleston County treasurer or whoever collects your taxes. You probably don't love that, but you don't, you don't despise them the way the Jews despise despised their tax collectors. You see, every five years, the Roman government would put up put up for sale the right to collect taxes from various areas they occupied. And so Roman senators, wealthy senators, would purchase from the government the opportunity to collect those taxes, and then there were really no rules that kind of governed how they could collect them. So let's say it's a you know, the government collects 10%. Well, they could decide I want another 10 or 20% on top of that. Well, then they would go out and they would essentially hire thugs, subcontractors to go get those taxes. And there were no rules governing how many taxes those people could collect. So on a 10% tax, you might pay 50% taxes because, but, but some of it, most of it was just lining someone's pocket. And so when Jews saw someone like Matthew Levi coming to collect their taxes, they hated that person, looked on him as a traitor you might put him right in line with Gentiles, slaves, and women. Incest, prostitute, murder, adultery. Matthew is not only highlighting Jesus' claim to the throne, he is highlighting the utter sinfulness of the messianic bloodline. You see, King Jesus is here, but he is not like any other king. He's a king who doesn't hide from shame because he will destroy shame. As Paul says it in Galatians 4, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus is the promised king who knows the shame of humanity but has no need to hide. I mean, think about that for a moment. The holy God of the universe, who has infinite power, infinite glory, infinite wealth, infinite anything he wants, willingly takes upon himself our shame and bears it in our place. And in place of our shame, for all who place their faith in Christ, he gives his glory, his beauty, his infinite, matchless, wonderful grace. The king knows shame, but if you know the king, you don't need to hang your head in shame. Because he takes your shame and gives in its place a robe of beauty. Incest and adultery, Jesus has grace for that. Murder, he has grace for that too. What happens is that through the gospel, God takes outcasts like Ruth and makes them his sons and daughters in Christ. No matter your sin. No matter your shame, no matter what it is, if you come to Christ and you find yourself at his feet, you don't bear that shame anymore. No matter what it is, the promised king came, came to take that shame and to destroy it by the power of his blood. He has cast it, Psalm 103 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, he doesn't take it and set it to the side, he removes it from you. Shame of your abusive, angry heart. Jesus knows it, but he takes that too. The shame of your lusting eyes that you can't seem to get a hold on, Jesus knows that and will deliver you from that shame too. You're like, okay, fine. But there's something I've done something I've thought, something I've said that if I verbalized it, the people on either side of me, even if it's a people who know me better than anyone else in the world, they would never think about me the same. If you said this thing out loud, I could never shake the shame of that. But Jesus's grace is more than enough for the shame you fear the most. There is nothing that you need fear if you know Jesus the Savior. There is no shame too great for him. And I think that's why Matthew has has given us this list. If you said that, it's true. Maybe your friends and your neighbors might think of you differently, but not Jesus. He's not that kind of Savior. He's one who knows your shame and deals with your shame and welcomes you because he knows of it. You see, the only people that Jesus welcomes are those who know that they're sinners. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He knows your shame, and he's the only one powerful enough to actually deal with your shame. He became sin for us, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In his body he bore our sins on the tree, so that we might become righteous through him. So for all who come to God, admitting our sin, admitting our shame, admitting our need of him, he will not cast anyone out. We find salvation and grace through Christ. So if you're here feeling the weight of that shame, the weight of your sin, would you turn from your sin and cry out for Jesus to save you? It's a royal line, it's a shame-filled line, but It's also a diverse line. They're kings, they're Jews, they're also women and Gentiles. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. Jesus is a king for all people. I mean, look again at verse one. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we said that David is a central figure here, but it's not just David. It's not an accident that Abraham is included too. Because the the promise to Abraham was a little bit different. The the promise to David was a promise of an eternal king, but the promise to Abraham was that through him all nations of the earth would be blessed. Not not Jews, not a few, but all nations would be blessed through the coming Messiah. You see, in Christ all people find a Savior King. He's a king for all people. This is why Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter one that in him that is in Christ. All the promises of God find their yes. So there is no promise that will not be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Or as he says, they find their yes and their amen in Christ. There's not one promise of God that will fail. There's not one person that comes to God that will be cast out. There is not one person that the grace of Christ is not powerful enough to save. There's not one sheep that can escape from the fold. He can have 99 there and he will go find the one. He will go find the lost wandering sheep and bring them all safely home. So brothers and sisters, do not think for a moment that the God who is faithful to his promises in his his word will not be faithful to you. The God who faithfully fulfilled his word, even when it looked like all had gone dark, even when it looked like God was silent, God was faithfully bringing his purpose to pass and bringing about salvation through Jesus Christ. So don't think God will be unfaithful to you. He has always proven himself faithful. I mean, that moment when your husband or your wife comes home, or maybe even doesn't come home, calls you and says, It's over. I'm done. And you feel crushed. And you feel like that scarlet letter A is hanging around your neck. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has said he will never leave you and never forsake you. Though friends may fail me and foes assail me, he, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus will never leave you, never forsake you. Or when you have poured your life into loving and rearing children, teaching them God's word, hoping that and praying that, that your faith will pass on to the next generation. And they're like, mom, dad, this Jesus stuff, it's, it is not for me. And in that moment, you feel like an utter failure. You feel like the point of your life is like pointless. There's, there's no reason for anything that you've done, but brothers and sisters, God will be faithful to his word. His grace will sustain you through every trial or if your boss visits you tomorrow morning and says, thanks but no thanks, we are eliminating your position. The God who provides every need of yours through Christ Jesus will be faithful to the end. Every promise is yes in Christ. He's a king for all people. So let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to pray silently in your seats, And then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to God now.